0: Welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you for tuning in. I'm as grateful as ever. And as ever, we have got a lot to cram in in our time together. Uh, if it 's okay with all of you i 'm going to reflect on the s m p leadership contest and the lessons of leadership much more widely than that uh, contest alone um, so that 's what i 'll be doing. Your questions will involve a dialogue on all sorts of things uh, first of all I've got tons and tons of questions or points uh, on uh, the interview I did with Neil Lawson, the chair of Compass, last week. Um, So if you haven't heard that, do listen. Uh, It's it's triggered a a huge array of questions. Uh, No, more points, some questions. So there's that, There's uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol, more on that, and the position of the DUP, the stuff on Boris Johnson, the Sue Gray appointment, and so on. So that will all be covered uh, when we go to the questions, Um, but I'm going to focus on the lessons of leadership from the contest so far with the uh, SMP. So before all of that, uh, yeah, got so much. Um, just a reminder of the live shows coming up, and it's really the timing is, is brilliant, frankly. Uh, you've all got to come along because a lot of these shows uh, coincide with the week when uh, Boris Johnson will appear before the Privileges Committee. This will be an extraordinary moment. Here will be a prime minister... What do I say? Prime minister, going crazy. Former prime minister, who has really, throughout his life and certainly his political career, avoided scrutiny of any sort. It was a form of genius that he rose to the top of his party, avoiding uh, great scrutiny uh, via the media or internally. And when prime minister, he managed to avoid it too, which is incredible, by appointing a cabinet of subservient figures and by winning. By a huge margin, and then a Prime Minister can do whatever they want, the December 2019 election. But here, very precisely, because the Privileges Committee has outlined the areas they want to cover, he is going to be scrutinised. And it will be televised. Uh, So anyway, it will be the week of some of these uh, live shows and it will be just after the budget and all the other things will be rolling along as well. I'll tell you more about what we will reflect together live uh, nearer the time. But to get tickets, um, it's Birmingham, March the 21st. King's Place, March the 23rd, Belfast, March the 26th, um, and then we go on to uh, the Rope Tackle, March the ninth in Shoreham, the Withermart Centre, Barnard Castle, April the 1st, uh, the Old Market Theatre uh, in Brighton, April the 24th. Um, now, all the shows will be different, reflecting the dramas whirling around us at the time, but as I say, some of those earlier shows will be It will coincide with the Johnson drama reaching a denouement. The other uh, announcement is the next bonus podcast on uh, Patreon. And by the way, there's another way you can um, do this, which is you can click on iPhone. There's a subscription. If you listen to the podcast on uh, iPhone, you'll see. I know some do, some don't. But uh, you can get the Patreon link on the blurb for this podcast along with the tickets. And at the moment, we're doing a series of bonus podcasts on troublemakers. Uh, There's been so far Tony Benn and Enoch Powell. And I was going to sort of do another uh, Labour one this week, a Labour troublemaker. But it's quite interesting with the Labour Party for all its restiveness, uh, for all its dysfunctionality. Actually, it's surprising the degree to which uh, their key figures kind of behave themselves in government. So, for example, in that stormy 74 to 79 Labour government, first led by Harold Wilson, then by James Callaghan, No cabinet minister resigned on an issue of principle. Now, you compare that with the conservative governments. Uh, Theresa May, cabinet resignation virtually every day over Brexit. Uh, Boris Johnson unable to form a government after a series of resignations last summer. He's almost forgotten that, as if it was a sort of weird aberration uh, in his uh, Churchillian fantasy that he's always on the edge of a prime ministerial comeback. I had a couple of ideas from the Labour side. I was going to do Michael Foote, who remains a fascinating figure. But I was speaking with a Shadow Cabinet member about that. So Michael Foote, yeah, he was in the 50s, but... I still might do him, actually, because he's a fascinating figure, someone wholly at ease with being a follower of Aniram Bevan and the Bevanites, who caused a lot of trouble for Hugh Gateskill and then Michael Foot in the 1960s when Labour were in government, showed no interest in joining or no passionate interest in doing so. He was wholly content with the other things he was doing and then became the absolute opposite of a troublemaker in bringing the government uh, or trying to bring that Labour government together in one piece as Callaghan's deputy. Is it, yeah. And then, of course, he became leader. Uh, maybe. Oh yeah, I, I think I will do that. But the next one will be, uh, you all have wanted this, Nigel Farage. And I will address the key question, the degree, lots of people say he was the most influential politician of our era, was he? Would Brexit not have happened without this troublemaker from outside Parliament? Uh, Joe Ruffles, one of the listeners to the podcast and regular email, has got a great idea for another Patreon series of those from outside the House of Commons, how many have brought about change through pressure. Beyond Farage, because we're doing him in the Troublemaker series. It's an interesting question. Uh, and uh, suffragettes, for example, did they? can you directly link change to their protests? So on. Anyway, that's for another day. But that will be the bonus podcast coming in the next few days. So now, if it's OK with all of you, few reflections on the SNP Leadership Contest, which is an event of great consequence, obviously for the future of Scotland and the campaign for independence uh, and also therefore for the UK. Uh, The rest of it will be affected, whatever happens on that precise route, uh, whether independence at some point happens. It also, of course, has huge implications for the wider political UK landscape. Did the combination of Salmon and Sturgeon drive the SMP to a peak that wholly wrecked the Labour Party's positioning in Scotland? And is there now space for Scottish Labour to recover to some extent in the post-Sturgeon era? And if they do, Starmer's path to number 10 becomes smoother because without Scotland, Labour winning in England – Uh, has always been problematic for England. The the figure that uh, always I find very interesting is that in 2005, uh, the Conservatives won more votes under Michael Howard's wobbly leadership in England than uh, Tony Blair's Labour Party. Labour won uh, because the votes were distributed in the wrong place in England and because of Scotland, where Labour was still by miles then the dominant party. So huge implications. Now, what is so interesting? And here we have the wider implications about leadership and what is required of leadership. Because I've been struck looking at the three candidates for the leadership, Hamza Youssef, Kate Forbes, and Ash Regan. Certainly, uh, so what do they remind me of? And to some extent, though not wholly, Uh, These three candidates remind me of the kind of candidates that surfaced in Labour Party leadership contests after 2010. Then, and with this SNP contest, there were qualities in the candidates being fielded. But there were also weaknesses, Uh, a sense that leadership was going to be one hell of a big leap whoever won for the Labour leadership in uh, 2010, 15, and onwards. And so it is with uh, these three. They are all articulate and, in a way, have a wider range of language and tonal variety in their interviews than is often the case with the kind of UK-wide leadership contests. But they are green. And we have seen vivid examples of this. You know, Kate Forbes giving those early interviews, if she was being leaderly, would have thought of ways of expressing or even choosing not to express her social conservatism in a way that would not have caused a fury, that for a bit anyway... Trigger questions about whether she could even survive within the leadership contest. Uh, uh, It's a reminder that leadership is 25 leaps up a building compared with any other post. I mean, she's got a big post um, as, you, you know, economic policy, which is her brief, and which she acquired suddenly when she had to become finance minister on the day of the budget is still no training for leadership. And the other two are also, you watch them and think, hmm, first minister with this seemingly impossible task of finding a route to independence, that delivers. And that raises an interesting question uh, as to why, given the dominance of the SNP in Scotland, the dominance for some time. And here is another lesson of leadership. There are many, many advantages for a party having brilliant, dominant leaders, and the SNP have benefited from having two leaders with many of the qualities required of leadership. They were very different personalities, um, even though... uh, In a way, well, she was. Nicola Sturgeon was um, learned a lot from Salmond. Um, The the falling out between the two of them was one of the great Shakespearean moments of this SNP era, she being his deputy. And his brilliance was slightly different to hers. He was a figure of Harold Wilsonian guile. And um, he told me once that he modelled his leadership uh, partly on Harold Wilson. And what he did brilliantly was, first of all, of course, he was first minister in a hung parliament. Um, That was in itself a triumph to get to that position. But before uh, the total overwhelming dominance, but he managed the alliances that you need to form and discovering what you can do without the need for legislation brilliantly and advance the SNP within power. Uh, and Nicholas Sturgeon, I think the context for Sturgeon was uh, very benevolent. Uh, uh, he planned the handover brilliantly. Uh, whatever you think of him, uh, the timing was perfection. I think he now regrets it. <laughs> well, I'm sure he does, given the fallout between the two of them. But he handed it over at a dream moment announcing his resignation after the referendum on independence and on a day when many beyond those who had voted for independence felt let down. Uh, When Cameron uh, announced with, again, a wholly misjudged initiative early in the morning, on the day after the referendum that he was changing things in relation to Westminster and Scottish MPs, that English MPs alone would be able to vote on English-related legislation. And a lot of people in Scotland felt almost more angry about that than any other element of this whole sequence. And that was the day Nicola Sturgeon became leader of her party. And if you remember, the weekend that followed Uh, Well, in effect, she became leader of her party. It was always going to be her. There was no sort of uh, uncertainty as there is at the moment about the successor. And uh, membership applications were flying in to the headquarters of the SNP in the light of the disappointment that the referendum hadn't delivered, but also Cameron's foolish, unnecessary maneuverings at Westminster. So it was at A moment when Momentum was uh, helping her as the new leader, but she was ready for it. Um, She developed remarkably as a politician. If you look on YouTube, there are uh, examples when she was a youngish politician, even when she was deputy to Alex Salmon, where publicly she could be at times hesitant, slightly awkward, reticent. I think she's quite... A private, shy person uh, away from the political stage. But by the time she got it, she had arrived fully formed, uh, having experienced the battles of the referendum and being Salmon's deputy. He didn't stifle her. He allowed her to breathe, knowing that at some point he would want her to take over. And then she became utterly dominant and the voice and kind of almost personified the cause of independence. And she could work a room uh, almost instinctively. Uh, Some politicians, some leaders, certainly some of the current leaders have to think very carefully what they say in a room. She could just do it. I saw her... At a fringe meeting, not a yeah, no, a fringe show. She was on a panel at the Edinburgh Fringe last August. It was a kind of light-hearted fringe. She was there with a couple of comedians, and um, she kind of absolutely held the room. There was one point where uh, one of the panelists said some of the things that had gone wrong with England and therefore they could understand why some in Scotland wanted independence. And Nicola Sturgeon just looked up. She hadn't said much of that, but she just put her thumbs up and the audience kind of cheered. They were with her. Obviously, they had gone because they were supporters of hers. Not only did she kind of dominate Scottish politics, obviously, on one level helped by the pandemic, where the stage was absolutely hers and understandably so. Um, But she dominated her party too. And there has been a lot of talk about the control freakery and so on. That has advantages. She has continued to uh, perform well at elections, stunningly well at elections. Uh, And, of course, that feeds on itself. The more you are successful at elections, the greater your authority becomes and the more determined you are to exercise that authority by exerting near total control. You work on the assumption when you are an electoral success that um, you are the key to the party's almost um, survival. But that raises a huge question. What happens when you go? This was the problem for New Labour uh, following Blair and Brown's dominance from so many years. That underneath, inevitably, there are a bunch of half formed politicians. Because Blair and Brown were so dominant that it was very hard for anyone to breathe. That had big advantages. There was a discipline not always associated with the Labour Party in government or indeed in opposition. There was a sense of coherence um, as uh, the fleeting education secretary Estelle Morris said to her people when she became education secretary – There are Gordon's departments and there are Tony's departments. And we're one of Tony's departments, as in he was showing a great interest in education. She realized that her role was to deliver for him to the point that she disagreed on some of the things that uh, he wanted to do. And she resigned rather uh, heroically, actually, rather than sort of carrying on for the glamour of it all. But at the end of such a period, such a long period, Blair and Brown dominated the Labour Party from 94 to 97 and then dominated the government. All the key decisions were made in discussions between – discussion sometimes is a polite word, sometimes blazing rows – between the two of them and their entourages. And the cabinet had to dance around that. And other junior ministers danced even more passively, as you would see if you read Chris Mullins' diaries about being a junior minister, which is hilarious in the sort of powerlessness of the role. So they won one election after another on that basis, but then posed a big question in terms of the future of their party. Neither had cultivated potential successors. Uh, They were more concerned about imposing their will and discipline on the party. And so in 2010, a leadership contest took place, which was frankly pretty lacklustre, although these were largely between quite experienced cabinet ministers in 2010. It was the election that Ed Miliband won. Uh, There were the dramas between the two brothers. There were sort of uh, other issues, but um, it didn't feel as if I think it was five candidates would all had the leaderly qualities that would automatically descend on them. And Ed Miliband, though deeply experienced in government and had many qualities, um, struggled with being leaderly. And it was one of the issues in the build up to the 2015 election which then elected Jeremy Corbyn, who had had no experience of any front bench role. So this is what happens when big leaders leave the stage. If there isn't a successor uh, lined up with all the leaderly qualities that Nicholas Sturgeon had acquired when Salmond resigned, there is quite a lot of trouble ahead. And these three candidates, as I say, uh, in some ways, more fluent than some of the candidates that contest, for example, the July Tory leadership campaign, I think have got epic challenges given their lack of experience. I know they've all been ministers and all the rest of it and quite high up in um, various SNP administrations, but they are inheriting a hugely complex situation where, first of all, the SNP, like many political parties, are – but in in some ways more so. It's a deeply divided party. You have some on the right, uh, business leaders, for example, who want independence or, uh, or whatever, who look to a kind of Thatcherite uh, kind of vision. And then you've got some on the Corbynista left and Social Democrats. Alex Salmon always used to describe himself as a Social Democrat. And then as the uh, leadership uh, contest has shown – you've got a division between social conservatives and social liberals. Now, uh, there are some of you who listen to this whilst um, jogging round the meadows or up Arthur's Sea or wherever, um, who are uh, SNP supporters to say, well, what's, you know, what's so what? Every party is divided. Look at the Tory party at Westminster and so on. And that's absolutely true. But the art of leadership, is to it's one of the big challenges of leadership when we have these quite big parties with differing views. Is to bind it together and either crush the divisions because there is a sense of great momentum towards one goal that unites a party, in the SNP's case, independence, or manage them with such skill that uh, everybody is content. This involves great leadership skills that both salmon and Sturgeon displayed. I think in both cases uh, with them, it was the sense that the SNP was on the march and independence was the great goal that, of course, by definition, united every single member of the SNP, whatever their views on anything else. So that is the other, obviously, uh, monumental challenge. You will bind them together if there is a sense that a big charismatic leader is leading them all to the promised land. But it's not at all clear. And and, and and candidates in this current contest have got into trouble with some of their ideas about how you reach that goal. And indeed, I think Nicola Sturgeon herself, uh, one of the reasons why she decided to go, was she wasn't sure any longer, how you reach that goal. Her proposition that you take the next UK general election as a referendum wasn't going down particularly well within the SNP, but beyond that, it wasn't at all clear that it was going to lead to uh, the promised land of independence. You could have a new Westminster government or the old one back in again, saying, oh, well, we didn't see the general election on those terms, and that would be the end of it. So, how does one of the three smp candidates bind this divided party together by a sense that it is worth all hanging on in there uh, because independence is looming when it is not clear what the route is and even as big a figure as nicola sturgeon struggled to find the end of this route and if they give the impression that they're not sure or that the end goal remains as evasive as ever, for sure, other tensions will surface within the party, not just about the tactics to get independence, but on all these other issues, social conservatism, liberalism, how you run the economy, how you deliver public services, all the things that kind of uh, are the natural dynamics of a political party um, come into play. And then if it looks as if they're not going to be as electorally successful, there's trouble. The authority of Salmon and Sturgeon in the end was about their electoral success, which gave them an authority to drive uh, whatever they wanted to do uh, internally. So uh, I think it's, it is a a big moment in Scottish politics and British politics. It tells us a lot about leadership, and it's going to be fascinating to watch, not least uh, when there is a new leader and first minister, uh, because it would tell us another question. Whether a lot of the momentum towards independence has been down to the force of leadership of first Salmon and then Sturgeon, or whether the tides are so deep that you can have a new, inexperienced leader without the leaderly skills of their immediate predecessors, but the tides still continue to lead scotland towards wanting independence it's, it's it's going to be absolutely fascinating to watch for the entire uh, uk with obviously implications for all involved so we'll return to it and i know you will with your questions Without further ado, let's go to the questions. Any of you uh, listening for the first time, it, uh, if you want to join in the dialogue at this point, uh, make a point or question to steve rick14 at iCloud.com. That's steve rick14 at iCloud.com. And we've got some uh, great questions from all kinds, and I say lots um, responding to Neil Lawson's uh, interview that I did with him last week. Uh, so uh, let's begin with Nick Baldwin. You've often said that successful politicians are teachers. Yeah, and that's, by the way, uh, Salmond and Sturgeon, especially Sturgeon. She was a very good teacher. Whenever she put a case, she answered the why question, why why she was advocating what it was that she was advocating. A lot of leaders don't bother with that. They just assert, if you vote for us, we'll do this, this, this. Why? The election winners always do the why question. I haven't heard any of the candidates. I've heard a lot of assertions, but uh, in the SNP leadership, but not the why. Anyway, back to Nick. I think Starmer is starting to be a teacher by breaking down the problem of how to turn things around. Uh, by breaking it into bite sized chunks, these chunks are his missions, which I find readily understandable and reflect our situation. We do need to grow the economy, respond to climate change, rebuild the NHS, improve life chances, chances for education, and tackle crime. I can see how a radical program based on these strategies can be met so yeah well let 's let 's see i 've had It's had mixed reviews in the media and in the rock and roll politics cooperative, uh, Nick. But it's interesting that you think that he says um, of Neil Lawson's uh, interview. He says, I'm afraid Neil's pessimism means he's destined to be forever disappointed regardless of whether or not Starmer is successful. I suppose it depends what success is defined as being. I don't think he would be disappointed if um, the change of government meant Absolute change after just the dysfunctionality of recent times. But um, uh, let's see. Uh, So uh, Jeff Strange says uh, uh, – it's very interesting. I don't know if you're listening, Neil Lawson, but you've, you've kind of got a whole debate going here. Just to say a big thanks for the podcast with Neil Lawson. Space and room for good discussion, allowing the subject matter to breathe. Yeah, one of our favourite phrases for new listeners. Let things breathe. The BBC is so biased these days against letting interviews breathe, letting anything breathe. Some of their programmes, which are going to be sort of hour-long programmes with about eight or nine guests. Oh, God, it's pathetic. Uh, it also illustrated in the main how remote our elected political masters are from us mere mortals. This is back to the interview. There is an intense craving for those of us outside the fripperies of Westminster for discussion that underpins strategies for change. Your chat with uh, Neil exemplified this. It got me really thinking, oh, well, that's that's great to, uh, great to hear. Those of you who didn't hear it will be envious, but the joy of podcasts is... You can go back. It was the last podcast and listen. David Stanley also agrees with uh, uh, Neil Lawson. He says there is a need for change in the voting system and party management to bring in more people of talent rather than expelling and excluding people because they don't conform to rigid and narrow views. I've never been more disillusioned and fear that things are likely to get worse until we change the electoral system. Well, David, there are a lot in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative uh, who want to change to the point where I had to do, as you probably know, uh, two electoral reform specials um, earlier this year. No, last year. Anyway, David said, as a former councillor and a party member for 35 years, I can only agree with Neil that the party has become a hollowed out, desiccated machine. If only Mikhail Arteta was leading the Labour Party. Well, David, if only Mikhail Arteta was managing Spurs uh, as a Spurs season ticket holder. Uh, maybe you knew that and put that in as an act of terrible provocation. Rob Watson is on the other side of this debate. He's, he said he's listening, doing the housework. And it sounds quite arduous, Rob, your housework. There's a few descriptions of what Rob gets up to listening to the podcast with his housework. He says, uh, I hope Keir Starmer doesn't follow Neil Lawson's advice and write too many articles for The Guardian, The New Statesman or Marxism today, but continues to do what he's doing well and keeps talking with the wider country. Uh, Yeah, well, I think uh, Rob Neil Lawson would be up for a dialogue with the wider country in terms of a Labour leader doing that. I suppose it's a question of what the message is at this key moment uh, in the build up to the next election. Good luck with the housework and everything else you do, uh Rob. Uh, now Nigel Bannerman writes from Brittany. Oh god, it must be so great in Brittany. It's freezing in the UK at the moment. Anyway, he too wants to follow up from a point made by Neil Lawson in, in the podcast. Uh he says he Neil bemoaned the lack of substantial intellectual figures in the current Labour leadership. A question which I don't know if you've managed to discuss either before or after is why? I think an interesting point to consider is why is the current political terrain producing the characters it does, and what does that imply for future developments? Yeah, it's it's interesting. There have always been and there's less so at the moment, uh political figures interested in ideas. Some of them are troublemakers who are featuring in the series. You know, the, you know, Powell, Tony Ben mentioned Michael Foote earlier in this uh podcast. Uh Wilson was surrounded by big Uh, thinkers, Uh, Anthony Crossland, of course, to name but one, but there were others. You know, I'll put Roy Jenkins in that uh, category. Uh, And on the Tory side, you know, the people like Ian Gilmore, brilliant writers and full of ideas and in a way as interested in ideas as policies. We're we're at the moment in a sort of phase where uh, uh, quite a lot of this has been sort of depoliticized to quote Tony Blair down to an issue about what works whereas the essence of politics is a is a debate about the means to get what works no one in a party stands for not for what doesn't work and that's when you get the space for ideas and you know think tanks suddenly start buzzing with a sense of great space and opportunity and that is a an important part of politics. So is the discipline and message discipline and all the other things that we get in this era. But the, but the ideas matter too. Thank you, Nigel. Enjoy, Brittany. I assume it's... Is it sunny then? Maybe it's a bit too early for that. But we haven't got anything here. It's just cold. Over to Richard Evans next. Uh, with your With regard to your recent commentary on the Northern Ireland Protocol and particularly whether the DUP are likely to accept the new arrangements... I have to say that I'm very much on the side of Dominique, our French correspondent, but who was from Northern Ireland. This is another debate we're having for new listeners. Is the DUP ready to be pragmatic enough to sign up to the protocol? Uh, that's the view of Canon Paul Arbuthnot, who follows it very closely. He lives in Dublin, follows the politics of Northern Ireland meticulously. His view is that it they are. Dominique says there's no pragmatism in the history of the DUP. And as I say, uh, Richard comes down on Dominique's side. To my mind, the DUP have absolutely no intention of being pragmatic, despite the obvious economic and wider political benefits. And much of their confected obdurance isn't really about the Windsor framework, but much more about not wanting to re-establish the Assembly in Stormont, with Sinn Féin as the uh, largest party. Yeah, so there we are. I'm kind of reading these out because I think a lot of you know the DUP uh, better than me, uh, and certainly uh, Paul does. That's Cameron Paul Arbuthnot, who is uh, writes back to put his side, and it's important. It's a it's a really interesting this. I think you learn about parties through debate. It's one of the problems with the BBC where you have to pretend to be pretend. No, there is you can be impartial, but if you just say, well, there's this and this, I mean, the debate shines light. So, this is Paul's latest contribution. Lots of thoughts are running through my head about the DUP's position on the protocol deal. I know that some find it hard to believe that the DUP are pragmatic, but they went from being the party of Paisleyite protest to Paisley sharing power with Martin McGuinness. If this isn't sheer proof of pragmatism, then I don't know what is. The truth is that both the DUP and Sinn Féin have been on a pragmatic political journey. While still confident that the DUP will bite and take the deal, we need to remember that Geoffrey Donaldson needs time and patience to sell it to the more doctrinaire elements of the party. Of course, there's a reasonable chance they won't take it, but even if they don't endorse it, I don't think they'll completely reject it either. So there we are. The debate in our rock and roll politics cooperative continues. Richard Blackburn, uh, he tweeted, said, Hi, Steve, really enjoy the pods. Oh, thank you. Reese Sue am I the only one who thinks it's a masterstroke? It brings Johnson right back into it, causes nothing but trouble for Sunak. Starmer gets a top a- operator and PM is left fighting the Boris Johnson lies. Um, Yeah, well, the Sue Gray appointment, I I think the key question really is this. I mean, Boris Johnson is trying to use it to discredit her investigation, which uh, actually was relatively restrained, was very restrained, actually. She gave no verdict on him. She didn't investigate the so-called ABBA party, which sounded uh, one of the more kind of riotous events in number 10. He will try and use it. I think most people know that she was an impartial civil servant and uh, the party gate thing was conducted in that light and was not not challenged at the time. So I think the key question is, will she be a good chief of staff for Keir Starmer? And we won't know that till she starts. Uh, But what she has got is clearly an an energy and a formidable personality that gets things done. And um, she will bring that in. I think the key question is: He himself is uh, defined. Really, you're defined by jobs you do. You know, in your 40s, early 50s, he is a director of public prosecutions. That's become leader of the Labour Party very quickly. He was only an MP in 2015. So you need people around him who understand the rhythms of politics deeply. Now, that's not her uh, because Sue Gray has been in the civil service. So who is it? But, I, but we will know, and that is, I say, is, I think the key question is that, and we will know soon enough. Uh, now, interesting, it's great to hear again from driver Andy our white van man for the cooperative. Any of you want things moved around? It's Andy. Very usefully, he's in our cooperative on B Watch. One of the things we've explored in our cooperative is the degree to which the BBC is influenced by newspapers. Anyway, this is Andy said at six thirty this morning. The BBC news website did not feature the DM's slightly desperate claim that Starmer and Sue Gray are plotting the end of civilization as we know it, the DM being the Daily Mail. Um, yeah, the Daily Mail put it on the front. Basically, Gray and Gray, by implication, it was Starmer and Gray that organised the parties and hosted them almost. So it wasn't on the BBC News website, but the Daily Mail splashed with it. Big influence on the BBC. At 8.30, the story was in at number two on the website, Uh, And he shows it to me, uh, and it is. It's the BBC website that when they all got frightened by the Daily Mail, oh, better better do this. Tory anger at Labour job for party probe chief Sue Gray. And then Andy says, and two hours later, it was leading. So it's a really interesting case study of the impact. So what happens at the BBC? They're all cocooned at Broadcasting House or New Broadcasting House. And then the papers arrive. And it's like a sort of tablets from heaven descending um from the outside world and has a huge influence on the thinking especially papers like the daily mail because they're terrified if they don't run with it they'll get criticized and um and that's a really interesting example thank you for following it Uh, presumably it was before you got into the van andy rather than during yeah I, i mentioned earlier uh Joe Ruffles. uh, He's got a good idea for a Patreon series. Um, Yeah, just wondering who's coming to Belfast. That would be great, Joe, if you make it to the Belfast show uh, this month. Yeah, the, the kind of the influence of Farage. Has great change come about? And are we living through the consequences arising from him, who was never an MP, and whether there are others who have had a similar interest? As I said at the beginning, I think that's one to to follow up. Thank you, uh, Joe Martin Jones. Do you think greater devolved powers to the regions will create a better cohort of local politicians? And will they be trusted by the powers that be in Westminster? Yeah, well, there's a whole podcast to be done on that. I think, yes. I think if you look at the mayors, for example, I mean, Andy Burnham was one of the candidates who stood in the 2010 and 2015 leadership contests. He didn't win either of them. I think he has more leaderly qualities now. Now he's mayor of Greater Manchester. You are on your own. You have to develop. Or He said in the interview I did with him, I don't know if you all heard it, that he felt more comfortable with his public voice in this role. And as a leader, you've got to be comfortable with your public voice. It's very hard to acquire a public voice at the center of the stage with all the spotlights on you. You've got to have it already. So I think there is a chance of that. Now, whether they will be trusted at Westminster is a key question. If Westminster or the Treasury are providing money for them, they will want to keep a close eye on how that money is spent. I think that will still be the case, even though uh, some of you might have heard the interview I did with Lisa Andy. They are planning a historic transfer of power from the centre. I suspect the centre will still show a lot of interest. Let's quickly do a couple more. Phil Gibbons, you said you thought that Labour's pledge to get the highest sustained growth in G7 was good. I disagree. Why the highest? Firstly, it's resonant of Johnson's incessant world-beating claims during the pandemic. Also, how can you pledge to be the highest when you have no control of the policies of the other six? Uh, For me, it doesn't make sense. Just pledge strong, sustained growth. Phil, you've converted me. I agree with you, I, I, and uh, for precisely the reasons you said. I mean, I think what I thought was okay was to have these missions as a focus in government. Um, they, are, they are vague, and there are the tax and spend conundrums still to be faced, as we discussed last week and with Bridget Phillipson when she was advocating uh, a childcare scheme of some ambition but i agree with you i think that would have been a better way of doing it see what happens with our dialogue our never-ending dialogue like the bob dylan we're on a never-ending show um never-ending tour some of you converted me to electoral reform though i have my doubts still um and i'm converted phil oh stephen murray uh the friendly orthodontist from dublin uh yes yeah, I, I really want to do a live show in dublin you Got me thinking. He says, This is another theme, perhaps, uh, for Patreon. It's a really good one. Again, I presume many things are decided in secret or behind closed doors, but sometimes you know who was talking, when, and where they were talking, but not what was said. Uh, yeah, uh, he was referring to the negotiations that Sunak conducted to bring about the agreement on the protocol. Yeah, there are many others where the doors are closed and things emerge. What was said to bring them about? Um, it's, It's a really good idea for another bonus podcast series on Patreon. Thank you, Stephen. I hope to get to do a show in Dublin. Um, that'd be really fun. Finally, we're going to go to Tokyo and Nigel Tantrum. Every week, PMQs is the same. Starmer asks a question and Sunak gives an unrelated soundbite. I thought it would improve after Johnson. To be fair, I thought Truss marginally more responsive. Actually, there was that first Primus Questions between Truss and Starmer, which almost got a bit ideological, which is very healthy. In British politics, it's got to be about ideas and values as well as you spent ten p on this and five p on that, which is what happens in elections where Labour certainly are challenged. But as if an accountant was the interviewer and the shadow minister was sort of asked, you know, it's, it's hope that you're right about it. it the one PMQs was quite good, and then she was gone. Uh, my question. Why has neither Starmer nor his predecessors ever said words to the effect of point of order, Mr. Speaker? The prime minister didn't answer. This might be followed inevitably with point of order, Mr. Speaker. I thought this was questions to the prime minister, not questions to the leader of the opposition. Loving the show. Oh, thank you, Nigel. Spread the word in Tokyo. Be good to get an audience in Tokyo. Come out and do the show there. Um, yeah, well, actually, that is used a lot. It's a clever device. Uh, leader of the opposition says, I remember Tony Blair doing it a lot. Like, I'm. You're asking me the questions. Let's swap places. I'll be the prime minister. So you can be the leader of the opposition. Huge cheers from Labour MPs. Um, so that one is used. Um, but I think there are better ways of uh, both of them doing PMQs than we've had recently from Keir Starmer and uh, Rishi Sunak, perhaps for another podcast but that's it i think we better finish now i hope you've all enjoyed running baking uh having a glass of something or other uh while we've been trying to make uh sense of it all uh in our time together there'll be another one uh later this week an interview which will be great so do tune in for that and subscribe that's the key thing if you subscribe you get it automatically when it uh comes out and that will be thursday for patreon subscribers friday for the rest of the cooperative and uh yeah if you could leave a review that'll be much appreciated but only if you like it of course and uh yeah do book tickets for the live shows where we gather together to make sense of it all and i say i think the the end of march when these shows erupt it's going to be many many dramas around us anyway in the meantime have a great few days see you soon thank you Bye.